Good morning. Great worship. Good morning. Happy New Year. It would have been a, a very happy New Year if Alabama would have won. <laughs> Just saying, but uh, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> we are in the sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews. Before I start, I almost forgot, I want to let you guys know to be praying because we're going to get a new elder. We've, the elders have uh, selected Paul Allen to be an elder at Calvary Restore. And we always give, whenever we introduce an elder, we give you about a two-month period. If there's any reason you think Paul should not be an elder here, well, just come and let me know or one of the elders know, and we will definitely take that in consideration, but uh, just be praying on that. Uh, we've selected Paul. The Lord has selected Paul. Well, we're going to look at today one of the most difficult passages in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6. And also be praying, also, I almost forgot, be praying that the audio, the screen goes right because we have Pastor Jonathan in the booth. <laughs> and he's trembling like a baby, not wanting to mess up. So throw up a prayer for him, but I'm sure he'll, he'll do fine. But we're in the sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews. And it's a passage that troubles people. That believe that you can leave or lose your salvation. And it troubles those who believe you can't. And then it raises a question of can you? Can you repent and come back once you leave? So we're going to look at that. But first, Hebrews 6 now is continuing what was written at the end of the fifth chapter with the author of Hebrews saying, look, I want to teach you more the in-depth things, but you're still not ready. You're still drinking milk, he scolds them, not solid food. So I've got to review the basics. So he goes now through the basics in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, therefore, leaving the discussions of the elementary principles, the rudimentary, the first things from the beginning of Christ, let us go on to perfection. That word is maturity. Not laying again the foundations of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. If I said to you, lay out for me some of the basics of the faith, where would you start? Where would you say, so this is really a fascinating list that's drawn up that Paul, well, the writer of Hebrews gives us. As these Jewish believers in Jesus begins to question who Jesus Christ really is. But Paul, once again, the writer of Hebrews, he called these the elementary, the basic teachings about the Messiah. So he starts off with verse one. He says, Laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. 
That's very important. And a faith toward God. What's interesting here, repentance from dead works, repentance from dead actions. What does that mean specifically? Well, he's probably talking about in the context of them being Jewish believers and that there were rituals and traditions and things they followed and then human efforts to please God. And that definitely does not do it. So there's repentance from that, from their human effort and human traditions and our dead works. That's one. We have to understand the Christian church that they are part of, this first century church, they would go on and what they would be saying instead of repentance from dead works, we say not laying again repentance from sin. That's what it should be. So when you and I were saved, it was through repentance from sin, not repentance from dead works. These Hebrews believers are turning away, we have to understand, from the law, from ordinances, from the commandments and statutes in regard to attaining righteousness and atonement through the sacrificial system. They give all that up and turn to Christ. The only way they can be saved, that's why the rest of that verse 1 says, and of faith toward God. We'll read in Hebrews eleven six 6, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Verse 2 says, he continues, of the doctrines of baptism, that's plural, and to the Jew, there was many kinds of washings, and that's the idea of the word here. There was the ablutions where they would go in about six or seven steps into a tank and wash before all of the feasts and all of the ceremonies, their hands and their bodies. They would, we know they would do different hand washings, all of those things. Paul says we're going past that. And no doubt they were hearing because they have become believers. They are hearing about baptism, what baptism truly means. But he's saying we want, to rem- we want to move on to the fullness of what these are about, of laying on of hands. He says this happened when, remember, all of the animal sacrifices, they were lay their hands on the animal, transferring, they thought their sin to the animal, and then they would kill the animal. That's what he's saying on the laying on of hands. No need to do that anymore. Jesus is our Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it's no need for that. That's not a foundational thing anymore in the Christian church. But it was something they had to deal with. So I want you this morning to sort of try to put yourselves in these Jewish believers' shoes, imputing their sins to this innocent sacrifice. He says, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. The writer of Hebrews calls these, these are the basic teachings. We know Jesus was resurrected from the dead and he's coming back to raise us. Those were the truths in Judaism. And he's saying we want to move on to maturity and to truths that's really all the Old Testament was in seed form of all these things. So these are the foundations And he says, and this we will do if God permits. 
And what he says here in verses 4 through 6, have troubled many believers. He says, for it is impossible. That statement removes all doubts if there is a gray area or not. For those who were once enlightened, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5 says this, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, remember my Christmas message, don't poo-poo on the gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good work word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, he's saying it's impossible. That's where we start this morning. To renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. The author is sounding a very serious and sober warning here. Some may say, Ruh-oh, that's me. I've done all of that. I was enlightened once upon a time. Then I fell away. I'm a goner and I knew it. I've committed the unpardonable sin. Well, is that what he's speaking of here? First of all, if you're worried about that, you haven't committed it. We have to understand the Bible is filled with exhortations to come back to God. It's filled with it. You study the Old Testament, you find the word return much more than the word turn. God encourages the nations to turn to him, but his own people, he constantly saying return. That doesn't say much for us. Jesus tells us of the parable of the prodigal son who returned and was received and restored. That's the God we serve. 1 John 1 verses 8 through 9 tells us, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says in 1 John chapter 2, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, a defense attorney, Jesus Christ, the righteous and he himself is the propitiation, a place where all the wrath of God was poured on him for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The New Testament, once again, is filled with those encouragements that if we fail, we can come to him. In fact, he said, our high priest is touched with our infirmities, with our weaknesses, and we can flee to him to his throne of grace when we have needs and he will be there. So it can't be sin if you blow it, your name is mud. 
When you've got saved, remember, God said, welcome in. Did he say that? I'm sure he did. I've done the hardest part. He dusts his hands off. Now the rest is up to you. Good luck. He didn't say that. That's not at all what he said. And that's not what this piece of scripture is teaching. Some say they were never believers in this passage he's speaking of. And they used the word taste it for their reason. They really didn't dive all the way into Christianity. They just sampled. Like I often do when I go to Sam's. I don't buy much, but those little sampling areas I run to. So I just kind of dabble in. That's what they're saying. These people, they, they weren't believers. They just tasted it and continued on, waited till they opened another station. No. So some believe that the author is speaking about non-believers. I respect that position, but I disagree with it. I can't ascribe to that. The author is speaking about believers for several reasons here. I'll give you one of the reasons people usually use for why they think the author is talking about unbelievers. That word, taste it. Verse 4 says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God. Well, then I say, what about Hebrews 2 verse 9? It's the same Greek word that the author used in the same letter to describe something Jesus did. He says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste, there it is, death, gumai, the same Greek word for everyone. So the argument in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 6, 4 through 6, the person is an unbeliever because the person just tasted or sampled the things of God, but never consumed them. But if that's, the, if that's the argument, then the argument has to be in the case of Jesus, and we know that he died fully, completely for our sins. No swooning there. So I think the author is talking about believers. He says in verse 5, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Some say it's just a hypothetical statement that the writer of Hebrew uses because Paul says in verse 6, if they fall away or in that margin of yours in your Bible, it might say, or have fallen away. These Jewish believers have come to the beginning of their faith. They are ministered by the Holy Spirit, drawn to the point of salvation, coming to the light, seen miracles at the hand of the apostles, verse 5 says, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, or as it is in the margin, or have fallen away, some say it's hypothetical. It couldn't happen. But that doesn't work either. There are five participles here 
This is free information. You can close your ears or you can bear with me. Verse 4, the writer says, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, means once and for all, that's the first one, and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, verse 5, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And once again, it doesn't say if they fall, but it says in the margin and have fallen away. The fifth participle. So it's a very difficult construct in the language here. It reminds me of, of the fifth chapter of First Thessalonians, and it kind of rhymes the same way where Paul goes back and forth in the same kind of construct. He says, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, dot, dot, dot. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. He switches it back to you, brethren. You're not in darkness. So that this day should overtake you as a thief. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. He says, let us go on. Paul talking to the readers. It says in verse 3, this we will do if God permits. Verse 4, he switches. For it is impossible for those. Now look down in verse 6. If they fall away, notice that, if they fall away or have fallen away, either way you want to, to renew them, there it is, again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. And then if you go all the way down to verse 9, we'll be back. We'll put it all together. He says, but beloved. Aren't we glad he said that? I am. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. I'm pretty sure that the brunt of this warning is for these first century Hebrew Christians. But, and understand me, but, it splashes on us. Now, did you hear what I said? I'm pretty sure that warning is for these first century Hebrew Christians just coming to Jesus Christ, still struggling with the, 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 the aroma and the sacrifices, and I'm not sure and you, about, I, I don't come to church anymore, I don't put my hands on a lamb or a bull anymore, I can see what's happening, but, but this man, Jesus Christ, has did all this for me, and they smell the incense, and they smell the aroma, and they're not sure, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, do not turn back, do not turn back, and so today, it's still splashes on us. It's a warning here. Now, exactly what the difficulty is, we're going to dive into it. But you and I, as believers, we have gone on. We're no longer on the basic things. We've gone on. We know the truth in regards to Christ. In regards to baptisms, we know the truth. 
of water and the Holy Spirit, we're moved on to the truths of all those things that were kernel in seed form to this first century church. John 14, 17 says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. We know about the judgment. We know about the last days. We know about these things. They are normal parts of our lives. We've gone on and we know that If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we do sin, then we can go to him and he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We know the Bible always encourages us to come back. Sometimes, I'll just tell myself this morning, sometimes I lie on my bed and I'm, especially when I'm reading in the Old Testament, I think of the first king of Israel, Saul, and how the Lord just pulled and pulled and pulled him, trying to get him in the kingdom. And then I look at the kings, especially the kings of Israel, all those wicked kings and how God would just pull and draw and send prophet after prophet for them to get into the kingdom. I think about Manasseh. At an old age, he finally gives his life to the Lord. It's hard for God to give up on anyone. In my opinion, and I believe I'm pretty accurate at this, but still my opinion, this seems to be, letter seems to be written to a group of Jewish believers that had come to the knowledge of the truth Complete or not complete, I can't say that. They're struggling. They were once enlightened. They tasted of the heavenly gift. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit. They tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come and have fallen away or if they fall away. Verse 4, it says, it is is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, the reason he gives, verse 6, since they, and he says, not you, crucify again for themselves the Son of God afresh, used to be there. It's not in the text, it's inferred. And put him, Jesus Christ, to an open shame. I believe what Paul is saying, the writer of Hebrews is saying, They have joined the ranks when they do this, if they do this, of those like Pontius Pilate and the high priest when Pilate said in Mark, what then do you want me to do with him? Speaking of Jesus Christ, whom you call the king of the Jews. So they cried out again, crucify him, crucify him. Paul is saying, if you've come into that much light, And if you've tasted that much reality to these Hebrew believers, and then you fall away and you go back to the Levitical sacrificial system, you're numbered among those who have crucified again the Son of God and put him again to open shame. Because you're saying he's not the Messiah. You've turned back to the Levitical system 
of sacrificing animals, as only this group here could do. Only this group can do this. And you've said of Christ what Pilate said of him and what the Jewish leaders said of him. His blood be on us and our children. He's a false prophet and a blasphemer. If you've come into that kind of light and you reject and then you go back, what are you going to go back to? That's the question. If you make a decision that Christ is not the son of God, that he's not the high priest greater than Aaron, that he's not who he said he is, and you turn away and go back, it's impossible then. What is there for you to go back to? Because you've taken the son of God and you've crucified him, as it were, and put him to an open shame. You've said he's a liar. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Savior. What do you have to come back to is the question. If you turn away and go back to the law and the sacrificial system, there's nothing to restore you to again. You've tasted and turned away. This challenge to these Hebrew Christians. Now, the writer he simplifies or gives an example of what he's saying in verses seven and eight. He says, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it. Isaiah said the word of God is like the rain that comes down from heaven. And then he says, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives the blessings from God. You know, when the rain comes down and the earth brings forth crops, The blessing of God is there. For those who dress it and keep the ground, it's profitable. But he says in verse 8, but if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected. And notice, near, near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. He says, you say you're a believer. Let it show forth in your life. It has to. But if a piece of ground brings forth nothing but briars and thorns, it's rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Look at verse 9 of Hebrews 6. I love that word, those two words, but beloved, in this context. Paul says, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany, accompany salvation. Notice, though we speak in this manner, we're speaking in a difficult way. I know I am. The question is, are we bailed out of this? No. Yes. Huh. You don't need to go into this text and think you're lost forever. I can say that. That's my point. Do Christians backslide? We all know they do. We all know that. You can't tell a Let me put it this way. You can tell a believer who's backslidden. I've talked to a few and been one myself. They say, I know I shouldn't have did it. I know I need to read my Bible more. I, need, I know I need to stop doing whatever I'm doing. God is through with me. 
And then we have to tell them and encourage them, no, there's still space for repentance. You can still repent. They haven't said God is a liar. I don't believe in Jesus Christ. They've strayed away from the righteous walk. And if they repent, just like the prodigal son, the door is wide open for them. You can tell because the groveling is there when you speak to a backslider. They haven't turned away from Christ. They haven't said he's not the Messiah. They may say, I'm a jerk. Yes, you are when you do backslide. But there's many jerks that's in God's kingdom. And the door is wide open for every one of them. So my point is, and I'm telling you, those are two different things. That's vastly different from someone who has come and tasted and said Christ is a liar. I have, I've never heard a backslider tell me that, that Christ is a liar and he's not the Messiah. And going back to the Levitical system, because you can't do that anymore. And using the blood of bulls and lambs to pay for sin, he says it's impossible for them to renew. Who are they going to turn back to? Verse 6 says, they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame, just like Pilate and the Jews who said crucify him. That's the sentence they passed on Jesus Christ. He's a deceiver and a liar. He's not who he says he is. But there's a challenge here for us. For them to think about those things and the writer of Hebrews is driving home his point. And he says in verse 10, for God is not unjust to forgive, forget your work and labor of love. Talking to these Hebrews and you and me also, which you have, sh which you have shown toward his name. As I was putting signs out this morning, I thought of this verse. God is not unjust <laughs> to forget your labor of love, whatever you do for him. He's a meticulous bookkeeper. He doesn't forget. In that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God is not going to forget those of you who have taken the position of a compassionate high priest, as it were. You've labored. You're encouraging others. God's not going to forget that. Look around this room we are the bride of Christ. Those that are in ministry, we get to take care of it until he comes. Again, I think of the Corinthians church with all of its problems. And we just went through the book of 1 Corinthians and we remember all of the problems they had, suing one another, getting drunk, fornication, division. And Paul said, I want to present you as a chaste virgin on the day that he comes. I would have picked the Ephesian church, the Thessalonican church, but he picked the Corinthian church. I, I think he picked it for a reason. And Paul knew those guys. Heck, they wanted to kick Paul out of the church, and he still loved them. He also knew the church was and still is beautiful. 
And it's not beautiful by performance, but by the completed work of Christ. Our labor is not in vain. You can give, you can give yourself to a lot of things in this world. I suggest we give it to Jesus Christ. He says in verse 11, and we desire, that word desire is to long for or to lust after, that each one of you should show the same diligence. How's your diligence this morning? We need to keep up with that diligent meter. We need to be diligent about the Lord's business. When he says in verse 11, we desire, it's the same word used in Luke 15, 16. This is how much desire we should have for ministry. Not only ministry at CR, but ministry in our homes, ministry at the workplace. Everywhere we go, we should have a desire to minister to those that are broken. Luke 15, 16 says, and he, speaking of the, the, the prodigal who had ran away, and he would gladly have filled, the word is epitomio, his stomach, have filled, that's the word desire, his stomach with the paws that the swines ate, and no one gave him anything. He was hungry. He was lusting after those the, the pods that the, the, the pig was eating. That's the lust and desire we should have to serve and minister to everyone. That's what the word is saying here. Do you have that kind of desire in ministry? Do you have a desire for ministry? I lowered the bar a little bit if you realize that. He says, and we desire that each one of you should show the same diligence to the full assurance that word assurance, most certain confidence. And I love the word hope, elpis. I love how jo John Corson says it. The joyful confidence, the expectations of coming good. That's hope. I know God is good. No matter what state, no matter what circumstance I might be in right now, that should not skew my vision of who Jehovah God is. I know he's good. And I keep my hope in him. And not only do I hope with tears, I might have to tear, or crying, but I'm full of confidence a joyful expectation of coming good is coming my way, coming your way, because you too are believers in Jesus Christ. No matter what circumstance we may be in, that's what hope is. And he says, to the full assurance of hope until the end, verse 12, that you do not become huh, sluggish. Don't become lazy. God isn't looking for bums. He called Moses tending sheep. He called David tending a flock. He called Gideon threshing grain. He's looking for those who will be diligent and know that through faith and patience will inherit the promise. These are mandatory courses. I wish he would have said through faith and then continued his sentence. But the Holy Spirit had to put patience in there. I'm not good at patience. I'm not good at waiting. I've learned 
I've been honed to be better at those things since Jesus Christ has come into my life, but it's still not easy. But it wasn't easy for Abraham either. He says, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit. You have to believe at time, as time goes on, he's true to his word. Inherit the promises. Verse 13, and when God made a promise to Abraham, he gives an example of faith and patience coming together. The Holy Spirit gives you a great example here. The master example, ex- ex- excluding Jesus Christ, he throws his boy Abraham. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater. I love this. He swore by himself. I wonder, did he look around the entire universe and say, who can I swear by to make these knuckleheads understand, my children, to make these knuckleheads understand that my word is my bond. Whatever I say in it, you can hold it. You can take it to your grave. No need for you to cry. No need for you to shed tears. My word is my bun. He looks around. He says, I'm telling you this. I'm saying it. And still he gives us a little icing. He talks about this oath. He swore by himself. That's how confident you guys He wants our walk to be in him. That's how confident. You're having bad days, you're going to have them. Count your blessings. Begin to count your blessings one by one. Sooner or later, a smile will have to come on your face. I know God's been good. And that's what he's really saying here. Saying, surely blessings I will bless you. We're the seed of Abraham. Really, we're the seed of Messiah. The promise really goes to Messiah. So if you're a believer, he's speaking to all of us. I will bless you and and multiplying, I will multiply you. Why is Abraham called the father of the faithful? God gives him this promise, and I know you know this. And it's 25 years before it comes to fruition. How'd you like to wait that long for a promise of God? 25 years before it becomes fruitful. We, we know Abraham. He tried this way. He tried that way. Did God kick him to the curb? No. Did he have to weep what he sowed? Yes. But God didn't say, forget about the promise. I'm not doing it anymore. That's not the type of God we serve. He was 75 when he said that to him. It was 25 years after that. And it was through faith, there it is again, and patience. Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. I love it when it says, he staggered not at the promise. Verse 15 tells us, and so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them, and it puts an end to all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly 
to the heirs of promise. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. That's why he gives an oath also. He doesn't want you to worry. He's got you. That by two immutable things, unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie. And because we know this, we should serve others even when we're distressed and our lives aren't doing well. We should be serving others still because we know God has the controls. He says we might have strong consolation, encouragement, comfort, solace, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of hope and set before us. Verse 19, this hope, once again, the joyful expectations of coming good, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. It should keep us steady. When the world is shaking to the left or to the right, when the world is reverberating, when our feet seems like it's moving and we're about to slip, that anchor, which is Jesus Christ, should keep the believer steadfast, unmovable. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying. We have as an anchor of the soul, but sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us. Even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. If the Lord will, we will dive into Melchizedek next Sunday. I want us to understand there's a difference between falling away and backsliding. That's the difference between heaven and hell, falling away and backsliding. I was thinking, how can I make my point clear of this? And then I went to the little bookcase I have, and I'd never forget reading this. And I went back and told Lydia, I said, I want you to read this when I, when I found it. And it just brought tears to my eyes and her. So I'm going to read a little. And it's a little lengthy, but you can handle it. In 1936, stick with me. At the age, and as I'm reading, some of you guys said, I know what he's talking about, because you probably read this book. At the age of 21, Charles Templeton professed faith in Christ for the first time. That same year, he became an evangelist, dedicating his life to sharing the good news to anyone who would listen. In 1945, he met a lanky 26-year-old evangelist named Billy Graham. And the two quickly became friends, rooming and ministering together during a 1946 Youth for Christ evangelistic tour in Europe. All our differences came to a head in a discussion, which better than anything I know explains Billy Graham and his phenomenal success as an evangelist. In the course of our conversation, I said, but Billy, it's simply not possible any longer to believe, for, for instance, the biblical account of creation. The world has not created, was not created over a period of days, a few thousand years ago. It has evolved over millions of years. 
It's not a matter of speculation. It's a demonstrable fact. I don't accept that, Billy said. And there are reputable scholars who don't. Who are these scholars, I said? Men in conservative Christian colleges? Most of them, he said, yes. But this is not the point. Listen closely. I believe the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible. I've discovered something in my ministry, Billy tells him. When I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the word of God, my preaching has power. When I stand on the platform and say God says or the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me. These are results. Wiser men than you or I have been arguing questions like this for centuries. I don't have the time or the intellect to examine all sides of the theological dispute. So I've decided once and for all to stop questioning and accept the Bible as God's word. But Billy protested. You cannot do that. You don't dare stop thinking about the most important question in life. This is what Templeton said. Do it and you begin to die. It's intellectual suicide, Templeton tells him. Billy says, I don't know about anybody else, he said, but I've decided that that's the path for me. We talked about my going to Princeton and I pressed him to go with me. Bill, I said, face it. We've been successful in large parts because of our abilities to abilities on the platform. Part of that stems from our energy, Templeton says, from our conviction, from our youth. But we won't always be young. Come with me to Princeton. I can't go to a uni university here in the States, he said. I'm president of a Bible college for goodness sake. He was president of Northwestern Bible College, a small fundamentalist school in Minneapolis. Resign, I said. That's not what you're best fitted for. Come with me to Princeton. There was an extended silence. Then suddenly he said, Chuck, Billy tells him, Chuck, I can't go to college here in the States, but I can and will do this if we can get accepted at a university outside the country, maybe in England, Oxford, for instance, I'll go with you. It was not to be. Templeton entered Princeton in September, and that same month, Billy Graham led his first crusade in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Their trajectories had been chosen. By 1957, Templeton publicly declared that he was an agnostic. In 1996, he wrote his memoir entitling it, Farewell to God, my reasons for rejecting the Christian faith. Fifty years after this conversation with Billy Graham, Lee Strobel had an opportunity to interview Templeton, who would die just a couple of years later. He was in his 80s and suffering from Alzheimer's, but still a lucid conversation partner. In A Case for Faith, Strobel recounts the ending of their wide-ranging conversation. Here it is. 
And how do you assess this Jesus, Strobel asked him. It seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully, choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. Think about the idols we glory over. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to be much to be the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that he was a form of greatness? I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes, he is the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, I, he stuttered. Searching for the right word, I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good, I know. Everything decent, I know. Everything pure, I know. I learn from Jesus. Yes, yes. And tough? Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and the exploited. That's where our ministry should be. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history, this man is saying. There have been many others Many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Uh, but no, he says slowly. He's the most, he stopped, then started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words, I never expected him to, he to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said, as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, 
he waved his hand dismissively. Hmm. Finally, quietly, but adamantly, he insisted, enough of that. That's what falling away is. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. That's falling away. You guys can come up. I want to leave you with 2 Timothy Chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. Therefore, Paul says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ. Jesus, before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, Paul says, I also suffer the things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed him until that day. If anyone you know has backslidden, continue to pray for him. But that's totally different from turning your back on Jesus Christ and say, he's not the Christ, he's not the Messiah, he's not the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, I am, I'm giddy. I'm happy because you called me. You saved me. You shown the light of Jesus Christ to us, Lord. And Lord, I pray for everyone here that we will not neglect that light, that we will come to the light like a moth to a flame and experience more of your power, experience more of your love, experience more of your forgiveness, your grace, and then tell our neighbors about Jesus Christ, the wonderful Savior. Father, I pray for everyone here. I pray for those who are sick and hurting. Lord, I pray that you will bring relief to them, whether it's mentally, mentally, physically. Lord, there's nothing too hard for you. We love you. We thank you for who you are. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our soon and coming King. Amen. Let's stand and close with a song, please.